Welcome to Elixir Outlaws, the hallway track of the Elixir community. Very much on my microphone screen. (laughs) Oops. Well, now everybody knows that we're recording at lunchtime. Uh, A little bit change of pace for us. Yeah, yeah. Normally, um, we're bright and early, eight a.m. Couldn't get Eric out of bed in time though, so it's not really. Yeah, especially since you guys are central and I'm eastern. It's just too early. Mm -hmm. (laughs) All right, so I'm Amos King. Uh, With me is my host, as always. I'll let you introduce yourself. I'm Sean Cribs. Hi. And then we have special guests. And there goes my phone. That's not supposed to happen while we're recording. How embarrassing. Uh, Well, this is our special guest, Eric Ostrich. Um, And I'm going to let you guys start talking while I take this phone to my wife. (laughs) And we're just going to record this way. Yeah, it hasn't been that long since you've been on the podcast, Eric. It's like six months or less. Yeah. Yeah, I think I was just starting at Smart Rent last time. Nice. Yeah, um, I think I heard you, you've been working on Nerves Hub lately. Yep, yep, yeah, Nerves Hub pretty much exclusively since I've started. So a whole bunch of changes were on the, uh, I think Frank called it the 2.0s of Nerves stuff. <laughs> so. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Nerves Hub is in its 2.0, so a lot of uh, hard deprecation by me just deleting like tens of thousands of lines of code. <laughs> Doesn't that feel good? So so fresh, so clean, right? Yeah, <laughs> I think I think my code contribution to SmartRent is still negative, which is pretty great. <laughs> That's awesome. That's, <laughs> as much as I love writing code, deleting it is so much more fun. Oh yeah. It's like uh, when you do the garage sale and you just like, you know, move everything out onto the onto the drive and people come and buy the stuff you don't want anymore. Yeah. And then two weeks later, you're like, I sold that. What was I thinking? (laughs) (laughs) At least with code, you can just rewrite it, right? Yeah, it's in Git. Just keep it forever. (laughs) (laughs) You mean you don't just comment it out and leave it there for later? That that is... (laughs) Very hurtful to hear. <laughs> Are you speaking I, from experience? Uh, no, I, I had somebody who did that for a very long time. Okay. And they would put up pull requests with commented out code. And then I learned after a while that you accept their pull request and then immediately go in and delete all the commented out code and they were okay with it. But if you deleted it out while they were looking at it, it was a problem. <laughs> I see. Yeah, I think he started in the days where you passed a floppy drive around to mm-hmm. to share share code changes. Or like people actually had to lock files in your version control system, oh. you know, and they like could leave them checked out over the weekend. That was a great time. I'm having flashbacks. <laughs> uh, it's like working for the postal service again. So, other than deleting code, are you adding adding features to uh, NerveSub? Yep, yep. Yeah, so we've got the last big thing I added was rolling updates. So you can set uh, the number of devices that you want to have actively updating at any given time. 
So if you have 100 devices connected and you can say, and you say, I want two at a time to update, um, those two, like two will happen when one finishes, it'll get, another one will get put in and so it'll slowly churn through your, your set of devices instead of just all of them all at once. The idea is that you can hopefully catch problems uh, with a small percentage of your fleet <laughs> instead of your entire fleet. You mean you don't want to put that brick code out there all at once to everybody? Nah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now that's that's a big feature. I know that's been something that I've heard people talk about for a while who've looked into Nerves Hub as being able to roll out. Does uh, yeah? Does the rolling out allow you to do like uh, like staged deploys to like this set of devices is alpha or is it purely just a number of devices? Uh, yeah, so it's just the number of devices. This is definitely like a first draft that will probably last longer than you would hope for because that's how <laughs> code works. But um, it's definitely like there's still some back doors or whatever of the rolling update. So if you reconnect a device, it can still force an update. Um, so it's just kind of a like of the devices that are connected currently, it will slowly roll through them. But if you need to force an update, there's like escape patches and whatnot, just until we kind of nail down rolling updates to be, I don't know, better, like, like have a kind of an alpha beta percentages wise type of thing. And you can make that happen with deployments right now. So you just have different sets of tags and all that fun stuff. So it, it's possible to do it, but it's not nice, I guess. <laughs> it sounds like you have a um, problem similar to feature flags. Yep. Yeah. You're like ver version flags, right? Quinn, Quinn talked me into getting a flipper and... You know, it has like three different download like updates that you can get and it'll force updates to you, but you got to tell it like, do I want the supported version, the release candidate version, or um, I like bricked devices version? That's, that's not what they call it, but that's what I call it. <laughs> I thought you were supposed to get the unleashed version or whatever that... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not into it far enough to, to start doing that stuff. Uh, I actually just like it as like a, a nice little test tool for my workbench. Being able to... You gotta start cloning hotel keys. Yeah, yeah. The only thing that I have on there is a key for where my mailbox is. And it's my own key. I just like copied my own key because... Every once in a while, I'm, I'm out someplace and I forget it, but the flipper is usually in my backpack. And I often have my backpack more than I have my keys, which is weird, but <laughs> especially with how old I am. <laughs> God, Amos, you're so old. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. You're older than me, Sean. Shh. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, uh, I remember like right right when I got out of college my wife bought me like a more like a sling pad it was like a briefcase right it had like a laptop spot in it and everything but it had like a longer strap so you can put it over your shoulder and that was like the more professional backpack and then we all found out that that just causes your back to hurt all the time so you go back to the mm -hmm. backpack 
Did you have a, a Targus laptop bag? Uh, I think that my, my backpack here, here it is. It's a Targus backpack. There we go. Because <laughs> they last forever. Hmm. Oh my gosh. I have it. I have a Timbuktu one that we got in like 2009. I got rid of my last Targus backpack because it, I had carried it for so long and it was so dirty that I couldn't actually get it clean anymore. But nothing was broke on it. It worked just fine. <laughs> so I guess I'm a fan. I don't know if I'm a fan. It's been so many years since I bought one. They may be terrible now. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sidetracking. That's, that's the name of the game though, right? That is the podcast, right? Yeah. Anybody working on anything exciting? You know, not that Nerve Sub's not exciting. <laughs> Within Nerve Sub, what's been the most frustrating <laughs> thing lately? Um, Don't say Frank Hunler. No. Friend, no, friend no, of the no. show. We love Frank. <laughs> <laughs> now, the most frustrating thing has been... Uh, gproc currently Hmm. we're using it for a distributed registry and it works great until you deploy and whatever's going on with gen leader is just like just pukes errors as it like tries to talk to the old leader that is now dead that it hasn't Mm -hmm. like synced to quite yet so my most recent thing was just like stripping out as much of the information that we have in gproc just to make it be like the device id the pid and like maybe some i think there's its status and then like a foot progress and like that's it (laughs) so that at least when it does sync around its data it's a lot smaller than the 15 keys it previously was so i don't know if that will help but i'm hoping (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I do recall, I mean, I don't know how much it has progressed in the years intervening, but I do recall Gen Leader being incredibly buggy with state transitions on the cluster. And um, like not even in a predictable way, um, which is partly frustrating. So like if you, if you can say, oh, it's going to fail in one of these two or three ways, um, it it uh, it'd be fine, and we can like build run books around that or whatever. But but yeah. you know it was just kind of unpredictable. Yeah, I mean, I'm using Gen Leader Revival, mm-hmm. which I don't think has been touched in four or five years. So it's probably the exact same. Oh, thing. that's more recent than I expected. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I think there I think there's another uh, version now. I'm gonna look it up. Typey 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 typey. Uh, Oh no, it says 2010. Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> it says it's forked from Gen Leader Revival, which is funny. Anyway, sorry, guess not. Yeah, I, I, I think there are like underneath it all fundamental formal problems with Gen Leader. Mm-hmm. Like they, their algorithm is flawed uh, from the beginning. So it's not entirely the library's fault. They were just going, trying to implement an algorithm that was described not in Erlang and without recognizing that the algorithm itself has major flaws. And so like, I, yeah, GProc I'm sure is really useful, but I would almost rather have somebody use, <laughs> use something like a, like a, a, a raft implementation or a Paxos implementation for that sort of state that needs to be global. 
or just avoid it altogether if you can. I, I don't imagine on Nerves Hub you can't avoid it in some senses because you've got to know which node to route particular devices to. Well, yeah, but, the main reason we have it is just to know that a device is online and mm-hmm. have it like be truthful instead of like updating a column in a database and like yeah the likelihood that that gets stale is significantly higher than like I have a process. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's why we it was previously using Phoenix Presence, which uh, at least when I was looking at it in order to do anything with it, you had to like rip out the entire presence list. And I was like, mm-hmm. that's not okay <laughs> for what <laughs> we're doing. <laughs> like we're misusing it. So um, that's why we switched to Gproc to just do like et selects. Um, mm-hmm. It's at least, yeah, it's really, there's like one spot where it doesn't await or a, a track. I mean, like the two things that you do really. And like, mm-hmm. Uh, that will just kind of hang during a deploy on and enough that it causes like ops genie alerts. It's like, <laughs> hello, everybody, I'm about to deploy and make a lot of emails happen. <laughs> but so, how, how many nodes are you running? Then? Uh, that's a number that I'm not sure I'm allowed to say, but it's not a lot, okay? Um, <clears throat> So it's just we have enough that will hopefully last for the next. Like once we fix U limits, it uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> should, should go for quite a while. But it's still just an a, like annoying thing that well I think I've deployed once a week or once every other week, and it's just like it doesn't inspire you to want to deploy more. <laughs> That's never good. <laughs> So, is so how how are you keeping track of process? Are you using like Gproc then? Yeah, that's what you've seen. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, I missed so, that. Sorry, I missed that yeah, during my runaround yeah. phone calls and everything else. <laughs> yeah. So, device online state is tracked by Gproc dist, uh, which uses that forked version of Gen Leader mm-hmm. revival. Uh, <laughs> Uh, which needs a, another revival, I guess. But um, <clears throat> no, <laughs> no. They actually, I was going to suggest um, it's maybe not like something that you all should take on because you don't you don't care. You're just like tra- want to track that state. But you know, RabbitMQ has a great raft library that they're using for state cluster state management called Raw. So definitely check that out. Uh, the documentation is kind of weird. I you can't. It's not clear how to use it. But that's, <laughs> but it's it's pretty battle hardened. Been in Rabbit and Q for like a good five years or something. So yeah, yeah, it seems very overkill for what we're attempting to mm. do. <laughs> <laughs> but I've also started using just local registries for mm-hmm. a different thing, um, which at that has a, a significantly more information in it because it's. For the for the rolling updates, it's there's a deployment orchestrator that kind of selects out devices that are like ready to be updated. So that just uses like the local registry, and so I guess there could be a way that you could just ask all the device nodes through like PG Group or, or like something, and just be like, "Hey, is this online? Yes. Okay. Great." <laughs> and just not do global distributed 
registries, which is just <laughs> always going to be a problem. <laughs> yeah, if one of the nodes... So if you're just asking a group, though, and one of the nodes is can't be connected to by the other two, now you have no idea if that device is online. It could be. I don't know. What's the best failure case for a device to be online and you don't know, or for a device to be offline and you think it's online? Uh, so at least the only reason we care to know it's online is that the web will show it. There's like a little green dot, and you can like connect to the console. So... As far as 99.9% of devices, we don't really care to know that it's online. Like, all of the updating will happen locally. Um, the deployment orchestrator will kick off immediately when you save a deployment because of a broadcast. But if it's siloed for whatever reason, every five minutes it kind of does a sweep through. Um, so it should pick up and just kind of keep chugging, even if it's like net split. Um, so it's really just for like web UI and like the, the off chance that some device somewhere is being a little weird and you want to like get to a console. So it's, it's like extremely nice to have when you need it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but not, maybe not the end of the world if it's, yeah, if it's a little bit off once in a while. Yeah, and I think it had been stale previously, and you could like trick it to to update by like pressing a. There's a reconnect button now that just like drops it on the server side, and then device will re automatically reconnect, which will kind of force its hand. <laughs> I think I've, I've heard about this. Was this a uh, a hack in place to to make sure it worked? Oh, so it's it's officially. A button now so what mm -hmm. amos is referring to is at gig city i think right before we showed up at gig city i'd added the button but there was a way to force a reconnect by accidentally or you'd click a button called identify which is supposed to like blink a light to know you're standing in front of the device you're like looking at on the web and because we hadn't updated the firmware yet for that new feature, it just hard crashed the socket and the socket reconnected. <laughs> and so people had found out that that was a, a hack around it. <laughs> I was like, what if I just make this a real button? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it is it is officially a feature now. <laughs> now we hard crashed the socket on purpose. Is that... <laughs> Or you close, close it, it, you no, close no, it nice. Crash. You close it nicely. Yeah, you, you close it nice on the server so it... It disconnects, and then the the uh, nerve sub link will just always wants to be connected, so it'll reconnect. The nerve sub link it's like is a manual chaos from, monkey. Yeah, <laughs> nerve sub link is running from the device. Then, yep. Yeah. So what? What? So okay, remote console pushing updates. What else does nerve hub give you? What more do you need? <laughs> that's, that's not a bad answer. I need a I need a reconnect button. <laughs> I'll get to that. Um, so there's a lot of features that um, it has organizations and products and lots of certificate stuff. So it's all you sign firmware and it's all like cryptographically secure per Frank and I trust Frank. So there's yeah, I mean, that's pretty much, you can like remote reboot devices, which 
which is always good. Yeah, I don't know. This is not mm -hmm. too terribly much. Um, we do have a new feature where when a device connects, you can blast. Uh, sorry, when a device connects its console, it'll blast Elixir at it. <laughs> <laughs> so it'll just like act as if someone's typing in the console for you. Um, and that has turned out to be pretty handy. So like there's like some devices that are on super flaky cell or something like that. Mm. And like they only show up once every now and again. So you either have to just like be sitting there staring at the console, waiting for it to show up again, or just like hope it lasts long enough on its cell to like download its update or whatever. So we, we had that to auto blast a little snippet to like, force it into like a, a better connection or something like that. I don't remember exactly why, but it does that now. Is it, is it that it like needs to front load packets to, to like widen the TCP window? Because so, sometimes like if it's, if it's mostly idle, you know, that window is going to be shrunk down and you're going to have slow start to overcome. I don't, I think it might've literally just been like, for whatever reason, these things weren't on like the community Wi-Fi. That's uh, a, like it just switched it, <laughs> like hard switched <laughs> it, like type of thing. And it was like only a problem if it was on this like one firmware version. So, so yeah, just a uh, I don't know has turned out to be very handy for all kinds of use cases. But it's super weird to like if you have the console open and then it reconnects, you can like watch it type out. <laughs> it, sends it, it sends a character by character, or sorry, uh, grapheme by grapheme. <laughs> so, I, I think that's still pretty pretty amazing that you can do that that sort of remote management at all. I can't imagine what it was like to work on, you know, low power hardware um, when you could only ship firmware by floppy disks or something <laughs> right yeah everybody yeah. bring your device or in. not at all like you release it and it's it's done that's it until you release a new new product yeah, there's yeah. um i did did work in utilities for a little bit mm -hmm. and some of the utility stuff they have people that their whole job is they have a bunch of like test equipment and and data transfer stuff and they show up at at you know who whatever utility company they upgrade all of the devices that they need to there and then they get back in their van and drive to the next utility <laughs> company uh and my understanding was the utility companies paid an awful lot of money for those updates but they had to keep things yep. up to date yep. and you know, I, I think most of the, the update costs could have been just like that person who was driving around because they had to be mm -hmm. they had to be pretty knowledgeable in case something didn't work for whatever mm -hmm. reason. They had to be able to roll back and unbrick devices and had to have some little bit of software, a little bit of in, hardware and mm -hmm. yeah, crazy big vans full of test equipment. <laughs> Were they ever like climbing poles to change things that were on, you know, utility poles? Not the people I saw, but I would, okay. I would believe that. That's kind of what I did in the military. <laughs> I climbed up radar towers and hung off the side and upgraded things and put things in place. I had a coworker that worked for uh, an electric company, and like, I guess everyone that works at the company has to do basic, like 
pole maintenance mm-hmm. training or whatever. And she was like in the office and like would never have gone out there, but still had to like learn how to safely climb like poles. <laughs> oh, forget it. I, I will climb a tower any day of the week. I hated climbing <laughs> poles and I was, yeah, I did learn that, uh, if you see an electric pole and the grass around it is brown, do not touch it. Oh, <laughs> because it's, you'll get a big zap. Oh, I was like, that's, that's possible. I've never heard of that before. <laughs> yeah. Now we, I just didn't like it cause I felt like I was climbing a horse. Like those poles are really wide at the bottom and you're trying to reach mm-hmm. around them as wide as you can and climb up. And I, I always felt unsafe on a pole. And then you hear stories from the older guys. You guys know what gaffing is? Pole gaffing. So you put mm-hmm. on these shoes that have spikes on the bottom of them. And you oh, use okay. those to climb up the pole. And I I never saw it happen, but I heard horror stories of people getting like partway up a, a pole that had been around for a while. So it's all splintered out from people gaffing it. And then like maybe it some of that gives way and you slide down the pole and you end up with like a one foot uh, splinter in your leg, hopefully in your leg. Oh my god! <laughs> and not other parts of your <laughs> body. It's like the horror story version of, <laughs> of uh, you know climbing the rope in gym class. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. climbing was the easy part. It yeah, was nice. coming back down fast. That was the yeah. hard part. <laughs> oh, do they still climb in gym classes? I have no idea. I imagine it's like a liability concern at this point. Yeah. You know, they had they had like, you know, foam pads on the on the gym floor and whatnot. But still, things that they did when we were kids would never happen today. Yeah, we had we had a pole. We didn't have Hmm. a rope, but we had a pole. And. I remember that thing was like once I figured out how to climb up it, it was really easy. And I used to just like run over to it and pee because it was always in the corner and I just start climbing it and I get in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh that was grade school though we didn't we didn't do it by the yeah. time i was in high school they didn't do that so i wasn't sure Mm-mm. all right i never did make it to the top of that rope no 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 did it have a flag i think so we just we just had to put our hand over the top of the pole like the pole okay. is mounted on the ground, but not on the top. It's actually on like this uh, rolling okay. thing, this big heavy base that had wheels on it. And you'd lean the pole back and they'd wheel it out in the middle of the room. And I had, you'd had to put your hand on top of the pole so that the coach could see that it was on top of the pole. Hmm. And then slide back down, which was the fun part. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> so outside of, uh, outside of the work work, which is all open source. You do other open source stuff. What, what have you been working on I lately? I do. Um, <clears throat> I've done too terribly much with it, but um, my other project is uh, I know. So it's a Sinatra for Elixir, I guess you can call it. <laughs> Just a like more simple version of a, a web framework. So, What was the impetus of starting that? Uh, really, it was uh, when Phoenix kind of came with LiveView by default. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it was like I'd done enough with like mud frameworks and all that fun stuff of kind of 
how it's built is like you have a the like incoming text or whatever and then you like reduce over whatever's going to happen and then so like all your code is more or less functional and won't have side effects it just kind of builds up the intent of what it wants to do and then like the framework will go ahead and do it for you so that's that's how i know works except for service and events um like phoenix there's a few functions you can call or a plug i should say there's a few things you can call that will like immediately send um but nothing in i know will do that um it will build up like you'll you'll build up your your map of the response and then like i know will go ahead and tell ellie what to do so there's no like shortcut through it or whatever so is the the service and events sort of like a funk type thing where it just keeps calling and that and like that function is supposed to return here's the next thing to send on the wire yeah so it's um at least based on how ellie handles it the way i've ended up making it happen is uh um you have to like tell ellie that it's in handoff mode or i forget what they call it mm. but um and then you'll say that it's chunk true to i know and then here's your mm -hmm. handler and then it'll go ahead and spin off a separate process that will be the thing that just kind of sits and loops and you can subscribe to PubSub and do whatever you need to do to get your new events. Um, and then that will go ahead and when it gets a new message from like an Erlang process or whatever, uh, you can send like, this is what I want to send back. Mm -hmm. And so then it will tell Ellie what to send. So just kind of spins up one extra process for you per SSE. Makes sense. So what what made you decide to try Ellie? Like everybody's on uh, cowboy or whatever. So yeah, the main reason is it's just not cowboy. Um, <laughs> and it's the first one I tried. Uh, I don't think bandit was far enough along or I just hadn't heard of it yet. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really just to try something different. Um, and Ellie's been pretty great. Uh, yeah, I don't know. No, no complaints. Um, super fast. It's very bare bones. Um, but so is I know. So I think it, it all fits together. Nice. Yeah, I think um, there was a period where I felt like one app I was working on like really didn't need Phoenix and I should have just used Ellie directly because <laughs> it was just an API and like the, the, the model's really simple. Um, you, you know, obviously if you want to do something more complicated, it's maybe a bit harder, but, um, it's a very, it's a very nicely, nicely run web server project. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, the, this, my memory is a little rusty because I haven't had to look at that part in a while, but mm -hmm. you just have like one handle function and it gets like the whole uh, struct or sorry, record of like mm -hmm. what's coming in. Um, and then you can, it's just like, well, here you go, do whatever you need to. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you return the, it's like a, I feel like it's probably like a four tuple or something like the status, the headers, the, the body, the handle, 
yeah, the, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, your, your handle function three, I think. I think it's just status handle and body. I, was was Ellie like inspired by like Haskell, some some Haskell thing, warp or something like that? I think warp maybe. Hmm. Sure, I don't. I don't remember. I don't anyway, <laughs> <laughs> let me let me stop because I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm just, but I think I think it was. Yeah, it looks like uh, just yeah the the <clears throat> three three wide. So the status code, the headers, and then the body. And the, so, the pretty simple. The status code you can they have some stuff like mapped, so you don't have to put two hundred. And you can put like okay or yeah. Why would mm. you want to do that? Just put two hundred. Yeah. <laughs> just, just be really clear about what you want. What are we rails? <laughs> I think it's pretty regularly that I have HTTP status codes up in my browser, though. Be like, which one of these did I want? Which did I want to use? Uh, it's it's usually the teapot. That's the one I want to use, but. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there used to be a uh, HD. <clears throat> yep. Stat.us. I like the uh, the one that comes with cat pictures, cat memes, it's like HTTP.cat or something. I forget. There was another one that got. That got bought by someone and uh, used to be my go-to because it was like very basic and had like the, the Rails code such or atoms that you could whatever an atom in. Symbol? <laughs> Symbol. Yeah, there we go. Symbol, yeah. <laughs> totally blanked from my mind. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, I've, I looked at Ellie but never never tried it out. Um, what what do you think is the, like the advantage of using it? Is it just the size and straightforward simpleness of it? Yeah, I mean, I I don't know how it compares in speed to something like Cowboy or Bandit, but it's definitely very fast. Um, because at least uh, in my Gig City talk, I. Got to say, uh, it's fast and then er than Phoenix, um, and I think it's like <laughs> I know and Phoenix compiled for production are both. Uh, I know it's like one point five times faster or something to do just like a, a hello world text response. <laughs> <laughs> so, Perfect micro benchmark. Yeah, that's right. Yep. <laughs> Quality benchmark professionals. Yep. <laughs> yep. Hey. I'll take it. Yeah, no, it's not. It's not. <laughs> hey, that's the very first thing that I uh, benchmarked to try to convince somebody to use Phoenix over Rails. So whatever. <laughs> it was like, it's like, look, this one comes back in two hundred milliseconds. This one says mm-hmm. nanoseconds or microseconds, yeah. whatever. <laughs> yeah, not it's nanoseconds. Whoa, <laughs> super fast. <clears throat> Yeah, I had uh, for one job that I applied to, you needed to 
make sure your your like submission could handle at least like five requests a second. And then I like did my siege against. I was like, oh, that was twenty eight thousand. Okay, I guess I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> that was easy. Wow, <laughs> that's that's awesome. I uh, five requests a second. Wow. Yep. <laughs> was I know? Uh yeah, no, so that Ino, being the minimum yeah, bar, right? That was yeah. a, that was the minimum bar, but I know did twenty eight thousand, so <laughs> <laughs> done. Sounds like that's what I'm using for my next project. <laughs> Ship it. Ship it. Ship it. <laughs> uh, yeah, it should be noted. Uh, I don't know if we've merged the CSRF problem. Or fixer or whatever. So there's like CSRF I know problem. Like, That's fine. You can still call it a problem. It always is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's like um, cookies are encrypted at least. So there's like a few things that you might expect security wise that isn't there. So if you have an internal API that is going to be VPN off, then like go for it. <laughs> yeah. But. But but don't don't put it on your open world production box. Yeah, I mean it's it's probably fine. I don't know. You might not have users. <laughs> <laughs> I probably don't. Well, luckily, <laughs> luckily, a lot of those uh, those things like cores and CSRF can be done in reverse proxies. So, um, you know, you can like slap on the nginx module and configure it, and you're done. That's yeah, that's nice. true. There we go. <laughs> Man, I it's haven't configured Nginx since yeah. I switched over to, <laughs> to working on Elixir, though. So, what do you need Nginx for? It's good for terminating SSL. Eh, okay, that's fair. Yeah, I set up um, one of the things I worked on for Nerves Hub was uh, self deployment scripts. Mm-hmm. And I ended up picking Caddy just for like Let's Encrypt, where it's like just mm-hmm. does it. <laughs> But I think like, yeah, I think Nerves Hub is the only project that I've done that has actually like exported a SSL port directly because you like need that level of control for devices. Mm-hmm. Since they're going to send up their cert backwards. I'm trying to think of any time that I've ever done that for a real project. I mean, I've played around and like looked through the different libraries and tried to open things up and just see what I could do. But I, yeah, I don't know that I've ever had a real project that I've had to do that with like manhandle an SSL port myself. I don't know if that's the proper term for it. It can, yeah. it can be a pain. There's like so many options. Um, and some of that is just open SSL doesn't take the path of least resistance. It's, you know, written by cryptographers, not system designers. <laughs> How do we get so, the, <clears throat> wire guard of open SSL. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I'm yeah, any of the SSL stuff as thus far, um John Carstens is the one that deals with that. And it's like there's a, a TLS problem and John's like, all right, I'm on it. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Everybody needs a John Carstens. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I I I'm like now you're you're having me like think about my own frustrations today and they have nothing to do with SSL. They all have to do with JavaScript projects and, uh, Deno and yeah, I want to like it. I want not JavaScript. I want to like Deno. 
just so I can use some JavaScript, but it's it's frustrating. Now I'm thinking all about going and fixing it. Not Ditto. <laughs> I'm gonna wrap something around it. I don't know. <laughs> dependency management. So today I found out I'm just I'm just gonna tell it because I've already hinted at it. So I'm working on dependency management for vendoring and locking dependencies for uh, scripts that you're gonna run with Deno. And there's um, the vendoring script. If your dependency comes from NPM, it vendors it in a completely different location that's not controllable by you. And so you can't compile, you can't like put it into the priv directory of your, of your Elixir app that you want to, uh, it's really frustrating because it'll vendor everything else except for the NPM stuff that you want. And then also this morning, it wouldn't even do that. I just had to upgrade to a new version and I feel like I'm jumping through hoops on mm. everything. And there's not like some environment variable you can pass the runtime to say, hey, put your stuff here. No, not that I can find. There that some, that there, seems kind of problematic. There are command line arguments for vendoring dependencies that aren't NPM dependencies. Hmm. But when it comes to an npm there, dependency, like I can say npm home or something. Uh, oh, maybe like work with npm directly. But I, I, Deno's not even. It's just pulling from the website. It's not. Oh. You're not running Node. I know there's like the like root folder in your home directory of like dot npm slash cache or whatever. Mm-hmm. And like when you install global stuff, it goes there. This puts it in a node modules directory wherever you run the script from. And there is a node modules directory flag that you can pass to it. Okay. But it only takes true or false. I've got (laughs) it. And if you you just pass it false, it doesn't doesn't cache any of your dependencies. Okay. And then you copy the folder to where you want it to. Yeah, I think that's And then before you run it again... You copy it back to the, the <laughs> <laughs> no modules folder. You just got to manually version control. Yeah, they have an import file that I think I might be able to point at the right thing. But normally when you get, it'll generate that import file for you. And then I think I'm going to have to go crash it by hand. Uh, or when I deploy, just run the script once because it will install all of its dependencies. Yeah, especially if, if you're making like a, a Docker image or something. Yeah. You just like run the, the script in your Docker file. Because and then they'll all be installed. It installs them the first time that you run it if they're not vendored. And you can still put a lock file on it. Um, but you also have to install them once locally before you can build a lock file. So, <laughs> yeah. Very circular. Yeah, but after you have them installed the first time, after you've been able to, I think it's because they want you to be able to run your script. And so make sure that your script can run. And when it does, then you can say, okay, now I want to lock to these dependencies. Can can, can you tell the runtime, just install the dependencies from this script? Like as a flag or or something? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So at least you can do that. And then I can also tell it in production when it runs to do no remote, which means... If if a dependency is mm-hmm. not there, don't go get it. Don't do anything. Just blow up. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like that's that's the safe bet. I'm trying to make it as safe as I can, and that's why I was trying to set up the vendoring and locking. And <laughs> I thought it w- should be easy, right? Like this is a, a problem that I feel like is solved. Um, 
but it wasn't easy. It, well, yeah. Simple. <laughs> I meant simple. <laughs> <laughs> it hasn't okay, Rich. It hasn't been it hasn't been simple or easy. It's been a frustrating day. <sighs> anyway, whenever mm-hmm. I figure it out, then people can use the Deno X library to run TypeScript stuff from inside their well they can now you just can't vendor anything um but yeah that that's been an interesting project by the way being able to pull in some of those javascript libraries that do things for you that maybe you just don't want to rewrite right now although you should probably want to soon i don't trust a lot of the javascript environment but that's why why i like deno because it allows you to have a lot of fine grain uh, control. At least with React Native, it would bit rot in front of your eyes. So <laughs> I, I can see where you're. <laughs> nice. Well, I better go. We've been been going about an hour, and I gotta go back to this Deno stuff. And now you got me thinking about it. That's all I want to do. So I'll catch you have all later. Have fun, Amos. Thanks. All right. See you. Bye.